Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on the Alts Podcast. Today, we're talking data centers and information technology with Mark Teeley, the CEO of Edgevana. Edgevana provides and facilitates data center storage and hardware solutions to companies looking to create or establish stronger network connections. Mark is also a thought leader in the far-reaching technology space. Mark's career in information technology spans nearly 30 years, beginning as a technical solutions manager for Hewlett-Packard in 1993. He has some interesting thoughts on how technology has shaped our lives and where we are headed. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark. All right, guys, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Today, we have a very special guest. We have the CEO of Edgevana, Mark Teeley, and he is uh, an expert in IT. So really looking forward to, to talking to him about everything IT. Thanks for being on the podcast, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chat. Absolutely. So when we were looking to have you on as a guest, I was like, where do we begin with IT? Because, you know, sometimes I have trouble just, you know, plugging in things into the wall. But it seems like you have so many different avenues that you can go into uh, with IT. And I was wondering if you could just kind of give me some some background, a general idea of what you do at Edvana and how you're kind of working with, with companies in the blockchain. Sure. Yeah. So you're right about IT. I mean, uh, that could be an entire podcast in and of itself about the uh, career opportunities and, and avenues for college grads, for non-college grads, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a fascinating conversation and, and a necessary one. As far as Edgevana is concerned, we were uh, built uh, under the pretext that demand for technology would exceed the locations and uh, capacity of existing service providers. So existing service providers would be companies like Amazon, uh, in the cloud space or Google and Microsoft in the cloud space. Equinix, many people are familiar with that name, even if they have only a passing knowledge of the IT space. Equinix provides co-location capacity in, in 250 data centers distributed around the world. Other companies in the same space might, would be companies like Digital Realty Trust and Sixterra and companies like that, Flexential. And we really felt that the, you know, the genesis of the Edgevana uh, idea was that the demand coming from uh, the requirement to bring more technology out to where the customer lives and works, right, would drive significant increase in, in demand for the kinds of services that an AWS might provide, an Amazon might provide, or an Equinix might provide uh, normally, but also for distribution. And I'll talk a little bit about that really quickly without trying to bore everybody to tears, but. Edge computing, for instance, uh, and Web3 are both linked. And Web3 is linked to blockchain and metaverse, et cetera, et cetera. And they have some inherent um, similarities in demand and technology strategy to support each of those areas. If we lump that together and, and call it edge computing, edge is the idea basically of expanding back out 
the technology solutions that are available today um, that you use on your phone now or that you use from your office or whatever, and creating applications, similar ones or new ones, that are right where the action is occurring, right? So for instance, some of the most common things that people talk about when they talk about edge computing is autonomous vehicles, right? So you can imagine, we're using really, really simple terms. You can imagine if your car is driving and making decisions that you wouldn't wanna wait even half a second for it to go find information, right? Network traffic, from one location to another can add anywhere from a quarter of a second to several seconds to a transaction. So edge computing is really meant to help bring the compute infrastructure closer to where the activity is occurring, closer to where the car is driving, closer to where you're using retail services, closer to where you're experiencing an event so that you don't have any delay, your vehicle, machinery and a factory floor don't have any delay in how the applications respond to them, right? So that's edge computing. How that relates to Web3 and Edgevana is that Web3 has a lot of the same demands as edge computing. They need global distribution. They need availability, like a traditional application in a data center needs, meaning, meaning it needs to be available most of the time. You can't just say, oh, I was using Amazon to, to do my business yesterday, but today it's down, oh well. You know, you can't do that. It needs to be available to you, right? And so Web3 has that global distribution. In some cases, requirement to be close to where activity is occurring via either a, a, an individual or an application. There are data residency issues, especially in Edge, Web3 in general, and Metaverse or data residency uh, profile information. Like when you log into Instagram or Facebook or uh, eBay, you have a profile that identifies who you are, what you like, what you clicked on last time, et cetera, et cetera. Every application, almost every application has something similar. Having that profile information readily available to you with fast response is part and parcel with being able to have a better experience and to be able to use more applications that have more in-depth experiences, more um, engaging experiences for the user of the application and, and that's really required for Edge or, or one of the things that Edge is supposed to help solve for. Uh, and Web3 and the metaverse all benefit from that capability as well. Edgevana was really created with the idea of making it easier for enterprises and Web3 companies to get to the places that they needed to go, to be able to find the data centers, the physical buildings, find the networks, find the compute infrastructure that they needed to be able to deploy their applications or their services wherever they needed to be around the world. So at the backbone, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, at the backbone are these data centers, right? That are kind of helping these networks run. Yep. And then they're running through the cloud. Some, some applications are, some aren't, right? Yeah. I kind of want to take a little a little uh, step back if we are, if, if, if at all, if we could talk about these data centers, like how much of that edge is required for a company like Amazon? What do these data centers look like? What do they store? You know, what kind of computers are in there? All these these things that come to my mind. Can you give me some insight into that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you're, unfortunately, you're probably going to get too much in, insight. So I apologize <laughs> up front to you and to the audience. But um, at its core, a data center is, it's like a big computer. When you really dumb it down, a data center is a big building that has a significant amount of security 
It has some automation associated with it relative to security and relative to the ability to provide conditioned air, uh, because generally speaking, they're very climate controlled uh, in order to maintain temperatures and humidity and stuff for the computer equipment that resides in the data centers. Data centers are designed to a high degree of availability, meaning, you know, they're oftentimes, if they're in earthquake country, they're designed around the idea of surviving even uh, relatively bad earthquakes. They're designed to, to survive floods and tornadoes and things like that because the things that we do all day long on our phones, on the laptop that I'm looking at you through right now, uh, on the computers that help a company stay in business or sell products, those things need to be maintained and they need to be able to stay available. And that's what a data center was designed around. And the reason I call it basically like a big computer is that if you were to take one server out of the data center, let's say it's still plugged in and still running, but you were to go mess with one, when you open the case, it would set off an alarm. Hey, somebody's breaking into this computer. You open the door to the data center, same thing occurs, right? When water gets on the case, oh, hey, there's moisture. We should do something, send an alert, whatever. If the temperature gets too high, we should warn somebody or shut down the equipment so it doesn't get destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are mirrored in the larger design of the building that supports that equipment. And the equipment that you might find in a data center, just like the design of a data center itself, um, can vary immensely. I mean, I've been in some data centers where there are racks and racks of iPads, just, you know, Apple iPads in little slots. And I've been in other data centers where there are rows and rows of incredibly dense, high-performance computing with Intel or, or NVIDIA chips or um, AMD chips in them using an incredible amount of power and, and running major applications for companies around the world. Uh, large storage devices, like everyone has a storage device in their computer, in their phone, in one rack in a data center, there might be as much storage as there is in a thousand cell phones. Wow. Right? So all of that equipment is maintained. It's very expensive. And it's oftentimes performing work that is critical to whoever it's performing the work for. So you're versed in the technical aspects of the data center. I'm wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about, I guess, the uh, choosing a data center, right? The business behind the data centers. Sure. As we did do uh, some writing and we talked about, you know, alternative real estate, you know, we found that there's a this thesis that as we become more digitized, as this web three becomes more prominent, as more people are working from home, that data centers are only going to increase in the coming years. Could you talk about that trend as well? Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, going back to the your original question about starting Edgevana, um, is part and parcel with why we founded Edgevana was we believe that the demand would increase and outstrip the, the ability for some of the easily accessible capacity to support it, right? And so there would be a lot more building that would go on, but a part of it is also how do we more effectively use from a sustainability standpoint, from a, from a barrier to entry standpoint, how do we more effectively use some of the resources that are already available, but just aren't mainstream or aren't easily accessible um, like an AWS data center or an Equinix data center might be. And so all of the trends you mentioned, as well as just the ongoing assumption that the more we modernize and the cheaper we make each function of compute or an application to be, the more things people will discover they want to use technology to solve for, 
right? So to give you a, a simple example, uh, I showed an iPhone earlier, to show it again. If you and I were having this conversation in 2004, and I said, guess what? I have inside, inside information that Apple's going to release a new phone. It's going to be touchscreen. And eventually it's going to have 2 million applications available to it. 2 million. Now, I can't even comprehend using 2 million applications today, 27 years later. I mean, anybody that was using a BlackBerry would have been excited to have 40 applications available to them. Very true. Right? Or a Palm Pilot or something like that. So you would have laughed at me or I would have laughed at you if we'd have said there's going to be 2 million applications on the phone. Do you know why there's 2 million applications on the phone? Because the barrier to entry for deploying those applications is really low. Think about when Oracle or SAP first had to create an application that would go into an enterprise. They had to find clients that were willing to spend millions of dollars each time that they bought. And that economic assumption was what drove their investment decisions into building the applications that became Oracle and SAP and, and anything else that you might use. Now, Fast forward to the age of the iPhone. Now, you and I just happen to be coders that we and we code shit on the weekends. Uh, and we spend a couple of days thinking the museums have this great opportunity to give people a better experience. So let's create an app that people can put on their phone when they go visit the Louvre or when they visit the Smithsonian. And that app can help them get a better experience in the museum. Well, you and I could code that application just our own time. We could deploy it on here. We could charge a buck 99 for it or even 99 cents for it. It has a billion people, a billion people that might look at your application. So our little investment, we only need, you know, a, a, a few thousand to download it to justify the time and effort we put in. And so that's what I'm really talking about, the barrier to entry. When you create a big enough audience in com combination with the ability to lower prices for introducing technology, you dramatically increase the amount of technology that gets adopted. This is my long-winded answer to your question about data centers is that fundamentally, we're not gonna be able to build data centers fast enough until we have an, a, a massive sea change in how technology is delivered. Is that quantum computing? Is that where we can get the computational capacity of the latest AMD Epic chip on a piece of rice. I don't know what it is, but historically, every time we make a major advance, all it does is create more consumption. It's almost like, uh, like we don't know how much technology we're capable of consuming until we're exposed to the next round of it. Well, think, think about it. If you had to invent turning on your car from your key inside the house on your own, just for your car, it never would have happened. It never would have happened. It wouldn't have happened for me. It wouldn't have happened for you. It wouldn't have happened for any of the people in technology that I know. On the other hand, if I'm putting that technology in a key and I can sell that key and that car to a million people, the investment makes sense to do something stupid as being able to start your car before you get into it or have the windows roll down a little bit because the Vegas summers are so hot, it'll be nice to let the air out before you get in. 
those kinds of things. Those are just dumb technology things that we can, can do now because of the economics of, of technology use, where if you were trying to solve for that in 1965 in a Buick, it would have cost you so much money as to never be justifiable. It's those kinds of things and millions more that we can't anticipate that are just waiting to be discovered when the prices and capabilities improve. Absolutely. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those, you know, emerging technologies, if, if, if you can, you know, what, what are the next discoveries? I mean, maybe this could lead us into a discussion about Web3. It could lead us into a discussion about, you know, the metaverse. And you yourself have said that you, you're kind of pivoting in that direction. Edgevana is pivoting toward Web3. What does that look like for a company? What does that mean for a company? And how do you plan on leveraging that? Yeah. So I'll start with the kind of the last question first. For me, pivoting Edgevana to Web3 is a business decision about what kind of customer we want to chase, right? As opposed to what kind of design uh, our company executes against. As in, I'm, I'm not Walmart changing from being a, a box store to being an all online store uh, or, or even Walmart changing from being a Web 2 company to being a Web 3 company. My internal requirements for Web 3 are almost non-existent because I'm such a small organization at this point. But we're, we decided to pivot because we saw the growth opportunity in this space. And frankly... I didn't want to look back five years from now and go, damn it, I really wish I'd bought that Amazon stock in 1998. I really wish that I'd been a part of building the Google search engine in 1999, because that's likely that the, the amount of change we're likely to see because of Web3, the metaverse, edge computing, et cetera, over the next five to 10 years will exceed what we saw between 1995 and 2005 relative to the rest of the internet. Wow. And when you consider how big that was and how big it continues to be, that's a very bold statement from me, right? But that's really what I believe. And so that's, that's why we pivoted because we started getting customer interest from the Web3 community. And we felt like we could solve for Web3 problems from an Edgevana perspective without sacrificing the work we did to solve for Web2 companies that need distributed applications and, and infrastructure. In fact, our methodology for building to support Web2 companies by accident was a perfect match to Web3 because a lot, of, a lot of detail, I won't go into all of it, but Web3 in most cases are, um, there's one word that companies in the Web3 space hate, one word, centralization. They don't like to be accused of it. They want to try to get away from it as much as possible, right? And so centralization means I run a bunch of computers and they're all in one place or one company's places, right? That's centralization, simply put. What they would prefer, and this is where we brought value to Web3 companies, is that by virtue of how we built Edgevana, we could deploy infrastructure for them. And the way we deployed automatically put infrastructure in a diverse set of suppliers, so they, by virtue of how we deployed, they got the decentralization that they wanted, right? So that's, that's why Edgevana ended up being, at least the way I see it and what I believe, to be a great fit for Web3 companies. Now, as far as uh, enterprises should expect or should think about relative to those things, and again, any one of the topics you've brought on so far could have been a whole 
podcast all by itself, right? So I'll, I'll try to shrink it down. From a Web3 standpoint, simply put, as a mid-sized company or larger, if you don't have a Web3, meaning a metaverse presence, five years from now, you'll be like a mid-sized company in the year 2000 that didn't have an internet presence. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you know what that means? You're invisible, right? That, and, and I'm being 100% serious about that, right? And you don't have to take my word for it. Mark, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because there's so many definitions for it. I, I, I get that. But what, what does that mean? Like, does that mean some sort of augmented reality where I'm shopping in a, you know, in a, in a virtual reality Walmart now? Or, or is it nothing like that? Is it more simply where you're, where you're interacting still on your phone, but you, you, know, you are a participant now somehow? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really all of the above. Think about um, how most of our applications look on a website. And then think about an email or a phone, right? Phone, of course, nobody likes a phone because the problem with a phone is that it's dependent on reaching someone. And it's dependent on how fast that person can convey an answer to you. So one, you have to wait to get to the person. And then two, you have to hope the person can actually give you the answer you want. And that if they transfer you, they actually transfer the story you just gave them to the next person so you don't have to do it over again. This is why a website is so valuable right? That's a very, very simple reason why a website is so valuable. But I, but I, can't, I can't reach into it. I can't do anything inside the website. I can't tell if the breeze outside your house is cool or warm. I can't tell if you're playing music quietly in the background or if you're taking um, notes on what Mark said and, and, and making fun of him. I can't, I can't experience that. What a metaverse potentially provides to a buyer is that I could go online in the store. If I wanted to be, I could be in the store. I could go into a room and I could try on every outfit in the entire store without ever taking my shoes off. Right. All in the dressing room or the the VR room, whatever the case may be. I could go to an event. I'm a geek. So a lot of the events I go to are, are, geek events, their data center or web three events or whatever. Right. So I could go to an event and I could be looking for Stefan and I see based on the fact that I know Stefan, Oh, there's his uh, avatar uh, at the other end of the hallway in this imaginary space. And as I walk over to you, I see that you're talking to Kate and I can tell it's Kate. And as I get closer the closer I get, the more I start actually hearing your conversation with Kate as if I'm walking up to you in person, right? And then when I see you and when we virtually shake hands and say hello, we say, let's go check out room C12. I hear there's an interesting talk going on in there. Oh, and by the way, Akash is in there, uh, I think, already. So let's see if we can find him. As we get closer to that room, we start hearing the clapping of the people clapping uh, for the speaker in the room. And as we open the virtual door, we see the speaker in front of the stage and the stage is showing the slides or video or whatever it is that the speaker is talking about. And then we hear the chatter in the room and, and we can see Akash and, we get, and he, he pulls us over and we sit down next to him. In other words, long story short, we're literally experiencing the activity. We can even exchange goods via things like NFTs, et cetera, all within the metaverse. Now, imagine you have something even simple 
like what I'm describing, and you're in competition with a similar company right next door to you that just has pictures on a website, which one do you want to be? There's really no question. The, the metaverse is, is perceived as very dystopian, and certainly it could be. There's no doubt. Just like we have regular social media today, and a lot of the social media we have today, I'm not going to pick on any companies here, could be considered very dystopian. In the, in the problems that they raise. But really what this is, is in my mind, it's not a replacement for your kids to go outside and kick the ball on the street. But it is an alternative when your kid wants to spend time with grandma and he can literally go sit in grandma's backyard with her, even though she's in Germany and, and talk to her and, and exchange things and experience the birds and the bees flying around uh, in the backyard, et cetera, et cetera, as if he's there. That's powerful. Exactly. Very powerful, engaging experience that that create memories and a lasting effect on the people. When was the last time you went to a website that had a lasting effect on you? Yeah, where, where you can experience something where, like you said, where you could feel something. I mean, there's nothing, there's really nothing like that right now, right? I mean. Right, right. I mean, some of us, have, you've probably seen some of those commercials where Cox has the the, the thing you put on your body and it acts like um, the two people are, are hugging. They feel like they're, they're hugged. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a taste of what this environment will eventually bring to people as far as creating experiences and memories. Uh, that's awesome. And just kind of, you know, whatever I get lost in, 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 in some of those images sometimes, but um, kind of taking it back a little bit more, when you talk about decentralized, right? I wrote in some of the questions in preparation, you know, we're talking about nodes. Mm-hmm. And kind of how the, the nodes are, are kind of like the, the backbone of, of these blockchains. And, and they are, you know, they are decentralized. Uh, you, know, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin miners, the, the Bitcoin node, node miners, they're spread all over the world. And that's kind of the thing. Like you can't hack into the Bitcoin uh, network. Is, is that kind of what we're talking about when you're talking about that companies, you know, want to have their data, their storage stored in different places and different networks because of security? Well, it's, it's a component and an opportunity in the blockchain space, right, is to be able to create um, transactions and ledgers that are distributed uh, entirely fault tolerant and not changeable by a third party, right? So that's a big part of it. And, you know, in, in some cases, you could create complex database environments with distributed infrastructure and support them in a way that gives you most of the same thing. But there are serious limitations on on, on the amount of complexity you can introduce, the cost of supporting it in multiple locations as a, as a unique pile of infrastructure, the speed of the transactions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, some of these blockchains, uh, some of the ones that I'm working with, have transaction performance that exceeds um, the transactions that occur on uh, the MasterCard and Visa networks. Mm, wow. So imagine how many people are putting Visa cards in, you know, every second of every day, Right. Um, and the, they can actually perform more transactions in, in, in the same amount of time. What the node, and we've, we've taken to calling them node operators because there are different names depending on, on what is being supported for that blockchain. Like if they're, being, if they're supporting staking versus proof of work versus, um, versus storing of data, et cetera, et cetera, they all have different names. But for this discussion, let's call them node operators. And, and effectively, what the node operators are is sort of a, a combination of disaggregated capacity and performance management, fault tolerance, and um, transparency, right? 
So when you build an application uh, or service that runs over a blockchain, all those people that operate a node on that blockchain are helping to stamp those transactions that are occurring. And they get rewarded for doing that, right? The more performant, the more they do that, the more they get rewarded. And it's sort of a, a self-fulfilling process for making, uh, for supporting the success of the network, but also for helping the network grow. It is in theory, it's not perfect yet by any stretch. And I'm not sure any of the companies would tell you that it is perfect yet by any stretch. Maybe a couple of them would. But the real goal is to create incentives for people that use the network to, to accomplish work, like selling NFTs or, or doing authentication or doing financial transactions or whatever else they're doing to, to find a value in using the network and paying for those transactions and having that work effectively support somebody like you or me who has a computer in a data center somewhere and is staking uh, on that network and effectively locking in those um, transactions on the blockchain, right? And going back to the decentralized focus, again, a part of the story, a big part of the story associated with decentralization is this notion that over time, whether you're a musician trying to get closer to your customers and your fans or you want to make financial transactions with somebody in Amsterdam or, or uh, Lagos, Nigeria, um, that you're able to do those transactions on your own with 100% faith and 100% and record management all via the blockchain without having to worry about a middle person in between. In the long term, it's really that outcome that the decentralization is important to. You know, a lot of that, when I think about that, when I think about making these um, transactions, these financial transactions, you know, I'm thinking about the Bitcoin, I'm thinking about the Lightning Network, you know, where you could submit payments or whatever, micro payments even in, in a second. And it's, and, and it's already here. It's already here. So now it's almost like, how do you now take that kind of technology, right? And how do you apply it to other industries? Let's use real estate. I don't know where they're sending, you know, uh, records, you know, mortgages, whatever the case might be in an instant, right? I'm wondering if, if that's that's kind of at the heart of where we're headed. You know, we talk about NFTs and right now, you know, pictures and things like that, but really we haven't even touched the surface. No, we're just scratching the surface, right? I mean, and NFTs get a lot of noise because there's a lot of star power behind them, right? For lack of a, a different, any other thing. In the long term, will NFTs still be important? Oh yeah, I'm certain they will. My daughter recently went to Coachella and uh, they had an NFT that you, that popped open and offered you things, uh, uh, you know, after you w went into the concert, right? Things like that. So NFTs are coming. They're still new. Still, people are still trying to figure out the best way to bring value with them or get value from them, but um, they are happening. But to your other points, I'm sure if you spent 10 minutes with or without me on the call, thinking about how certain business transactions might occur more fluidly if at every point of the transaction, there didn't have to be someone involved or a some sort of delayed response involved. And my first inclination when I think about that is that anything that requires a lot of very small transactions, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before about 
how the better technology gets and the cheaper it gets, the more things you figure out what to do with. Well, if we can figure out how to take payment from people in seconds or microseconds for a service, right, then you can begin to justify creating services based on that knowledge, whereas you would never be able to create that service successfully if every time I did the transaction, I had to call you up and say, would you approve that five cent transaction that lasted for half a second? Right. That, I mean, that's kind of like when the IRS sends you a check that says you still owe us 13 cents. <laughs> they just spend a hundred bucks creating a letter, putting it in the mail to send it to you to say you owe 13 cents. It just, it doesn't make economic business sense, right? So it really, that area of opportunity is, I don't want to say uncharted, but unexploited, a huge opportunity in, in so many different areas. And, and to your point, that's kind of where you are. You're kind of, you see that opportunity. I mean, that, that's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about, this is where we're headed. Could you talk a little bit about who, who you work with? Like who, maybe not, not names, but, or anything like that, but kind of like what kind of companies you work with, what problems they, they present. And if there's something even outside the scope of, of, of data centers, right? I mean, is there something that they're looking to somehow kind of get rid of that physical aspect of it, if that's even possible. Yeah, I'm not sure I have the, the perfect answer to the last part of the question, but to give you some uh, sampling of the kind of customer requests that we're working on, we've had requests that are as simple in, in, in my parlance, simple, but they're, they're not simple activities. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for Edgevana to be in business. But as simple as somebody saying, I need space in data centers in, in generally speaking, these two geographies. Can Edgevana go out and find me the data centers, put them under one contract, find me network, put that under the same contract, and then um, tell me when it's ready, right? Something as simple as that. So basically it's like I found hotel rooms with, with internet service for somebody who's gonna be traveling. Only it's millions of dollars worth of technology gear that's gonna stay there for years under contract, right? But otherwise very similar. That's kind of the more simple end. The more complex end of what we're doing for a customer is literally building them a globally distributed set of cloud infrastructure. So it's the data centers, the network, the people to support the environment, the servers, meaning that the computers themselves, the storage devices, the network devices, all that kind of stuff how they're packaged in order to provide the service to the end customer, how the customer gains access to that equipment and buys it and uses it, how the buyer of the original order from us visualizes the environment, all of that. So it's, it's from, from the, the simple that I first mentioned all the way to this com complex level of being able to deploy infrastructure for someone. I tell you, I'm sometimes probably boring to people that aren't in the tech space, but this stuff enabling companies to do business more effectively globally is something I can eat all day long, never get tired of it. It really is fun stuff. Absolutely. I, I guess one, one, one more uh, point, Mark, because I, I saw that it's, it's been kind of, you know, in the news and it's, I think important to you from what I've gathered on, on your feeds and things like that. And I guess the environmental impact, right. Yep. That I, I've noticed where does, where does that all fit in? That's my question. Like in the future, as we're developing these technologies, how careful do we as, you know, as a society, as, as a government, need to be careful about the consumption. I wish there was a magic answer, but you know, going back to part of my first answer about Edgevana was that 
we felt that we could at least start reducing the potential impact on the environment by helping companies maximize the utilization. Companies that are our supply, but also companies that buy from that supply, helping them, both parties, maximize utilization of infrastructure that is, is oftentimes otherwise invisible to the buyer and not easily procurable, right? Because it's kind of like, what's the most efficient car, right? Let's say, let's say it's a Prius, right? But you have six people in your family. So if you have to drive the Prius to and from school twice every morning, is it more efficient than buying a Camry or buying a, a Suburban? Right? I don't know. We'd have to do the math, but you get the idea. And so my focus as part of part of my focus for Medfauna is to maximize that utilization. So the, the more we use a service to, to closer to 100% of its real capacity, the better we are than anything new we could possibly buy, no matter how efficient it is, right? Uh, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is um, something I did just recently uh, with the iMasons organization. Uh, they are uh, putting out what they're calling the climate accords from the technology industry. It doesn't necessarily have to be only the technology industry, but that's where it's being originated. Many of the members of the iMasons organization and the companies that are involved are personal friends, people I know, people I've worked with over the years, people I've been to events with, um, people I've shared dinner with, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm uh, deeply involved with them and vice versa. And um, their effort is to try to help identify and eventually measure and manage down the embedded carbon that's in all of the objects that we use. Computers, data centers, vehicles, paved roads, transformers in the data center, generators, air conditioning units. How do we establish um, a baseline for what carbon was created in making this object, right? From, from digging in the ground and pulling up the gravel that eventually becomes cement, how much energy was used by that truck, how much energy was used by the machines that crush the rock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the embedded carbon that's in cement as an example, right? So at every layer of opportunity, we'll eventually have the chance to measure what is in the items now and identify process and, and um, measures for reducing that over time. So just as important as it is to have a car that gets 30 miles to a gallon instead of 15 miles to a gallon, or gets an equivalent of 100 miles to a gallon on electricity versus you know 40 miles to a gallon in gas, just as, as it is important to do that, it's also important to say, well, what materials did we use to make that car? And how did we make those materials? How did we ship those materials, et cetera, et cetera. So in many cars that don't get a lot of mileage by their owners, the embedded carbon in the car is probably worth more if you can save it than the savings they got going from 25 miles to a gallon to 35 miles to a gallon. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. You know, tracking it is, is important and having that information is important. And I guess the skeptic in me says, does it matter if, 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 uh, if it doesn't make sense financially? Well, that, that's going to always be a key, right? And like the story of technology and the barriers to entry improving over time, allowing for more adoption, 
Uh, if you and I were having this discussion in 2006, it would have been easily arguable by you uh, against me that, um, oh, I don't want to use renewable energy. I don't want to do that because it's going to cost me more to get a kilowatt of um, solar power than it will to get a kilowatt of coal-fired power. And in the end, it's all about my profit margin, right? So if I can't make better profit or at least the same profit, then it's not worth it to my business, right? And, and unfortunately, a lot of people still think that way. But two things are happening. One is more and more people are taking it to heart that they do owe civilization, their communities, their families, a little bit better respect for how the world is treated. So they're focused on this more. And just that change, just that change of being focused on it more drives a lot of behavior. But secondarily to that, the more we focus energy on renewables and alternative building supplies, and the more interest there is in the community, the more buyers there are, the more buyers there are, the more scale there is, the more scale there is, the cheaper the products and services become, right? And right now, and I, again, I don't want to speak for those companies, but there are at least in just in the United States corporations, there are probably two or 300 major corporations right now that will not buy from you as far as a, a major service or, you know, a data center service or something like that. They will not buy from you if you don't have a strategy for getting to net zero. The amount of change that's that's occurred in this space just in the last three years exceeds the change in that space in the previous 10. So that's a great way to kind of cap our conversation. I mean, when, when we talk about that, that change, you know, not just in the technology, but also kind of in the way we think about it, you know, in the way we think about how it impacts us, not as a society, but environmentally. Mark, how can people learn more about Edgevana? Where are you active on social media where they can get more, you know, about about your thoughts, about what you're up to, if they want to reach out. Well, I appreciate that. So Edgevana is easy enough to find, edgevana.com. Uh, most of my blogs that don't end up on a technical news site uh, will also be posted uh, um, there. I also have a podcast, a technology-oriented podcast uh, that you can reference there. And I often uh, exchange uh, technology discussions with folks on both LinkedIn, under my profile on LinkedIn, Mark Teeley, and um uh, under my Twitter handle, which is mtle10, so M-T-H-I-E-L-E-1-0. I'm fairly active on both. You know, being the CEO of a, of a rapidly growing startup means I'm not as active as I used to be, but I love the exchange of ideas. And anybody that's known me for more than a couple of years on LinkedIn will know I love uh, challenging my own assumptions about what is or what will be happening. And um, I, I believe that that debate is important to all of us. So I am always open to the assumption that I'm wrong. Well, you know, in, in five years, we can find out if, if, you know, if we can walk into that conference that you described earlier. You already can. The only question is whether or not it'll be widely adopted. That's, that's the real question, but you already can. In fact, if you're interested, um, a good friend of mine is the CEO of a company called Vatom Inc., V-A, Virtual Atom, V-A-T-O-M Inc. And um, they build metaverse for companies. Some of the experiences that I just shared with you were experiences I had in his metaverse software. So it's already here. going to definitely check that out, Mark. It, it's so great talking to you, uh, you know, giving us some insight on, on, on these data centers and just the adoption of technology. You brought up some really good points. And the one that's sticking out to me was the more innovation, the more we're going to consume and, 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 and kind of 
you know, where that, where that takes us. But thank you so much, Mark, again, all the best. Same to you. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. The idea is that the more we integrate technology into our lives, the more that we as a society are going to consume. His description of the metaverse is powerful, especially the one describing how family members can be together even if there are thousands of miles between them. I'd like to thank Mark for joining the podcast and being such a great guest. And I'd like to thank you for spending part of your day with Alts. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next episode, take care.